Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to Kicking the Karaoke, the intersectional feminist podcast dedicated to platforming the voices, stories and narratives mainstream media and society ignore. We are your hosts, Sid and Elena. Hello. We sound really similar and it's a bit confusing, but it's not about us. It's okay. It's about you and our guests. Last month we covered AID and we're really happy with how it turned out. And so are you. There was so much praise for this, which is really great. We really wanted to tackle the topic for ages and we weren't sure how, so we're really glad that you liked it and you told us about it so keep doing that and we're definitely going to be encouraging more people to say their age from now on so here's to smashing that age stigma and to a few shout outs Alice Wallace said that it was really interesting and particularly liked Chrissy's contribution from Opening Doors. Juliet said it was one of her fave episodes so far. Martha said that she could listen to Nula all day because the point she made was so good. You and us both, sister. And Carl Charles from episode eight, remember him? Said it was a great episode and thanked our guests for tackling these issues. So, on to episode eighteen. Ah! I can't believe it's episode eighteen. That's absolutely wild. Um, so, we're going to be talking about language. In the past twelve months, how many times have you heard someone up in arms about pronouns? Is it they? Is it she? Is it he? And the word queer. Twenty years ago, that would have been a homophobic slur. Now it's almost a badge of honour. How has that happened? What about the N word? Is it ever okay for white people to say it? And maybe you're a person of colour and you've been told that you sound articulate. But it's a compliment, right? Being articulate is is a good thing, right? Language is important, far more important than we realise. It's been said before that if you want to control the way a population thinks, you take away their language. This is a massive topic that intersects with colonialism, slavery, LGBTQ plus culture, class, and the list goes on. So we have three amazing, and we mean amazing, guests to tell us why language is important to them. First up is JJ. My name is JJ Bola. I'm a writer, poet and educator. I am from Kinshasa, Congo. I was born in Congo. I came to the UK with my family as refugees. I am of African descent. I'm African. I identify as male and heterosexual and uh, inner city uh, working class Londoner with relative privilege in terms of education, but disadvantage in several other circumstances. So yeah, this is probably like the most interesting way I've ever introduced myself. So uh, thank you for kind of giving me that opportunity to reflect on my own identity as well. Cool. That was, yeah, Amazing. that's really interesting. So super excited to have you as a guest on this podcast. It's all about language. So why is language important to you? I think for me, how it came to be important for me was how language confronted me or how I confronted language coming into a new country 
and not knowing the language particularly at a young age makes you realize that you can't communicate necessarily in the way that you're used to or in the way that you'd like to so being born in Congo and there till I was about seven years old I was really familiar with the language and able to communicate quite freely but then you move to a new country and then you learn that your language isn't accepted in the way that it should be and not only that the majority of people don't speak your language so outside of your home the way that you're understood within the education system or even just within the playground it really has an impact on your own development and also how it pertains to particular obstacles so I speak Lingala I speak English I speak French three languages considered to be quite a lot but I come from a family where my dad speaks about six languages my mom speaks five so it's quite ordinary to be you know, multilingual in our household but outside of our household it was seen as being quite a negative thing African languages were just not accepted at all I think language is important to me because it contains so much it contains culture it contains education it contains knowledge but also it contains power and how we transmit power and ideas and how people come to understand the world if we're looking at structures of oppression if we're looking at issues of like imperialism and neocolonialism colonialism one of the most effective means of colonizing people was to take away their language and replace of the language of the oppressor so if we look at congo for example that was colonized by belgium the language of the state became french and the congolese people who spoke french were actually labeled Evoluer, which means evolved. So if you could speak French fluently and articulately, French people, Belgian people called you evolved. So again, it was a way of creating a hierarchy that essentially dehumanized the people through language. So that's why language is important to me. I wanted to talk to you about the colonial legacy mm. of things like language, especially in Britain. Do you think that there is still a lasting impact from that today? Yeah, absolutely. We speak like colonialism was something that happened like years ago and, it, and it's just stopped when it said it was stopped. But it completely transmits into our daily lives even now. And if I look at my position, you know, of being a writer and an educator, which is a very privileged position to be in, particularly from someone who comes from a formal colonized country of the global south but also comes from a background of refugees whose my own grandparents can't read my work and so kind of operating within that space of privilege here in the uk the uk is a very classist society and so a particular profession or particular level of education almost ties you in a, into a certain class and so me operating within the realms of language as i do as a writer people almost immediately assume that i'm middle class not that i grew up on some estate and so it's all these associ associations that come with language, that come with the way you speak, that come with the way you write. And people essentially reveal their own prejudice to you relative to how they interpret your existence. We're very underrepresented in the publishing industry. And as a young black male, the assumption is always that you're going to use slang. And when you do that, also is stigmatized so the assumption is that you're not as educated or you're not as intelligent or you're not able to transmit particular ideas for me you know not that there's anything wrong with using slang but they shouldn't have those associations with it it permeates our lives like on an everyday basis down to even for instance i've been kind of challenging this on twitter but i've not really had a response and so feel free whoever's out there like to address this and to give me an answer so what's been happening a lot is a lot of the kind of liberal mainstream media has been and a lot of black writers as well have moved in this direction in that when they are writing black uh, in relation to the people they write it with a lowercase b rather than a capital b so say for instance if they're saying okay black british right they'll capitalize the b in british but not the b in black and for me black in reference to the people is an identity it's a status it's a culture like it's a collective noun as well so 
those should be capitalized, right? And I always see like there's a certain power and recognition and acknowledgement in having a name capitalized. So I've never really, really been given an answer to that. I've constantly thrown it out there, but no one's really answered that. And I think even that has a particular level of significance. These little things that if we just allow it to pass by unchallenged, that it just becomes the norm and it seeps into our conscious, our subconscious. For me, if we're not having this conversation like internally as black people, then there's an issue. And I kind of feel like, of course, it's great that there's a lot more representation in the mainstream regarding black issues. But the nuances of these conversations, if we don't control the narrative, it can set us back in one example and then move us forward in another. Mm. And then where is the progress there? I guess it's like a double-edged sword in the sense that it's good to have these like issues out in the front and being talked about but if it's not being like talked about by the right people or in the right way right and that's the kind of fear and problem that I have in that a lot of the mainstream corporations and they're now realizing that black twitter or black presence online has a real influence and so they're almost to a certain degree co-opting the image of the struggle they're really profiteering off that and for me that feels disingenuous because if your mainstream media organizations are representing the issues that black people have but within the offices they're not employing black people then that to me feels contradictory so yes representation is important but if we can't survive as people as black people within a white supremacist structure then what use does it do anyone for us to be visible but not be able to live you know so that's the kind of issue that i really have with it what do you make of the language that the media uses to talk about refugees and immigrants there's a particular very loudmouth person in this country a woman who represents very bigoted... I think you're all thinking the same person. Katie Copkin. <laughs> yes. <laughs> See, I don't even need to say it. Um, yeah. They reference... They refer to refugees as cockroaches. That's, like, completely dehumanising. And I think the language that is used is essentially trying to remove the humanity of a group of people. When that happens in regard to any identity, you're essentially justifying the deaths of those people. Look at myself in an example because, you know, I come from a refugee background. I really remember coming into the country and doing the whole thing of Prince, everything like detention centres and having family members and uh, friends and people in the community who have been deported and so forth and being like going on marches and so forth. But from my own experience, being both refugee, but also someone who sounds like they're very much integrated and included in this in the society no one ever assumes my refugee background because of the way i speak and so forth and i look very integrated so one of the things that happens is people feel comfortable to express their prejudice towards you because they see you more like them rather than the people who have been othered there was a time where at the school that i worked in it was break time lunch time i was speaking to a few colleagues of mine and we were talking about what's going on in the papers and so forth. And a couple of them said, oh, yeah, you know, these refugees are coming over. And essentially the whole kind of rhetoric that you see in the newspapers. Now, these are educated people. People have gone to universities. And that's why you think, you know, oftentimes, like, these ignorant views kind of labelled as something that only working class people have. No, it's widespread. Like, it's very educated people have these prejudiced views. And so they were saying, they were saying these. And then I challenged them, told them about my own experience. I told them about how we came into the country. I told them my upbringing and so forth and all the issues that we've gone through. And they were so shocked because they never realised a story like that was so close to them. And I think that's what happens is when people start to realise that something is closer to them and that it impacts their day-to-day lives, then they're compelled to make a choice. And that choice hopefully moves them to a point of compassion. And that's why, you know, 
we have to really challenge these words every single time and for me I found that poetry was my way of challenging these words because I feel art is humanising art gives voice not even necessarily gives voice but it elevates the visibility of a particular people but not through power structures but through like the humanity that exists I guess that kind of brings it back round to your point when you were talking about you know the way that media and particular people reference refugees and that it's like dehumanising and that therefore distances us from them so therefore we don't feel compassion towards mm-hmm. it we don't feel compelled to do anything about it mm-hmm. so that's kind of then I guess effectively what by using language like that you're distancing yeah, no, it's, yeah definitely but it's definitely a tactic because it's not new it happens absolutely across the, the board and it's happening throughout slavery throughout colonialism it's a century old strategy of imperialism you know and if we look at like the example I gave earlier um, in Congo of Evolueur now imagine if in English we refer to people who spoke English the, uh, a bit more articulately or closer to the Queen's English as evolved how just 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 how like dehumanizing that would be and just like normal okay years down the line now we no longer refer to them as evolved we still make this the distinction of those people in one way or another yeah and so that's exactly what goes on now it's just a different it's just a different name but it's still a level of dehumanization that's attached the n-word for instance the n-word is a is a uh, originally came as out as a form of dehumanizing the people, removing the people of their humanity, representing them in terms of particular stereotypes that aren't even true about those people. And so, unless we challenge these in our day to day lives, I mean, there's so many examples like the b-word and so forth, like just so many constant examples that happens across levels of of oppression. And unless we start to challenge them in our day to day language, our day to day lives, and they're just going to become normalized because they're being passed down faster then we are challenging them. So it was really interesting that you talked about the N-word and mm. that you didn't use it. Like, I would never use it. Yeah. Uh, there's also this movement to reclaim it, mm-hmm. isn't there? Or mm-hmm. I'm assuming that the B-word is a word that maybe I would reclaim. So I wanted to ask you about maybe reclaiming words or, you know, mm-hmm. was that, is it because you, you're talking to Elena and I, would you have used the N-word like, and actually explicitly said mm. if you'd have been perhaps with other people of colour. Yeah. So in regards to the N-word, generally, publicly, and also if I'm around non-black people, not even people of colour, non-black people, I'm not saying the N-word, the act like the full word to you. Like you don't, I don't want you to feel comfortable in even thinking that you can hear it and because you've heard it, that it conjures something in your imagination. The reason being is, for me, that's an exclusively black word. And that reclamation, although it's not something that I entirely agree with but it's an in-group conversation it comes from the people who've had that and know what it feels like to have that label attached to them however going back to um the example of the b word i i don't use that i don't use that do you know what i mean and for me if women want to use that to you know refer to themselves as a term of endearment and so forth and so forth that is absolutely their prerogative and it's a reclaimed word on their behalf i as a man who have male privilege it is not my part to say whether or not who should be using and what. Privilege teaches you that all things are or should be made available to you, that you have access to all things. And I think that's why the N-word is such an issue, because if it continues to be used exclusively by black people, which I think it should be, it reminds white people, but also non-black people, how they've used it in the past. And I particularly like have no problem with only black people using it I think that's just a conversation that we need to have 
within ourselves. It goes back to the issue of language being essentially a discourse of power, how the white identity essentially is constantly some uh, an identity that informs people who believe in it that they have access to all things. And the N-word is a reminder that you don't. And I think that's why it's such an issue. Thank you. Interesting that you were talking about part of the reason why you would never use bitch mm. is because of the power that you have as a man. And what do you think about the word feminist? Feminism and mm. intersectional feminism? Because a lot of people um, and a lot of men feel particularly, I guess, quite like excluded mm -hmm. from like feminism and the word and the conversations around feminism because of the word feminism, because it's like feminine, femininity. Mm -hmm. What's your opinion on that? Mm. And do you identify as a feminist? Okay, so I'll answer your last question first. I don't identify as a feminist, not because I don't agree with it or anything. I'm absolutely for the dismantling of patriarchy and gender equality on all fronts, intersectionally particularly. The reason why I don't identify as a, as a feminist is I think there's still relative privilege with a man identifying as a feminist. I think one of the things that I've noticed is when as a man you identify as a feminist, you quickly get marked as safe. You know, like on Facebook when there's like a... Uh, you know, a serious issue, humanitarian crisis somewhere, and it's like, okay, mark yourself as safe. As safe. It's like, okay, this man is safe. But what happens is a lot of men abuse that privilege that comes with um, identifying as a feminist, you know, because it's almost like, okay, we don't have to worry about this man doing the work of, like, of decolonizing themselves and checking themselves because they identify as a feminist and that must mean them so much more safer than what other men are. The real challenge for men is n not whether we identify as feminists but it's about us confronting other men other privileged men in our spaces like our issue is as men going where other men in spaces where other men are and bringing up the issue of gender equality so i think that that's where the challenge lies you know for us as men to really confront the spaces where we occupy as the majority and dismantle in that sense and I, that's what I found has been kind of more effective for me. I don't really want to use my privilege to gain more privilege, if that makes sense. I think that gives Sid and I and, and other like white people a lot to think about in terms of like the, I guess, the conversations and the spaces we occupy around black issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In that, I don't know, but just because we're aware mm -hmm. of like more of the injustice than like our other like white friends, we shouldn't like use that to gain more privilege yeah. Yeah. in that sense. So when I think of poets, I think of old white dead men. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, that's probably a reflection of what I've been taught. But what's it like for you navigating the world as a poet using language? Mm. What are your experiences of that? So, um, yeah, like growing up, very similar perception of poetry to what you've just said. But for me, growing up and kind of escaping the traditional method of education and just reading independently and going to open mics and so forth and just seeing people in my community in my city from my background etc who use the language who use poetry as a form of expression of a form of like communicating their experiences allowed me to also connect and understand that I could also do that in a particular way and I think that's becoming particularly through um, like the age of social media and internet we're getting a, a, a much more varied representation of poetry of literature is slow but it's still kind of changing and it's not necessarily breaking through in terms of the institutions yet but in terms of representation and visibility online like there's much more than there was like 15 years ago we didn't have any teachers who grew up on the states you know, we didn't have any teachers who, who understood why we were wearing our trousers down 
we understood why we were saying fam but now i'm saying okay i'm speaking i'm speaking to and working with young people and they're saying yeah fam yeah blood yeah this and i'm like yeah we used to say that yeah we were our tribes and we did so you were and i'll show them pictures and i'm like yeah and like, oh my gosh i'm like yeah you can do all of that and you can still go to university you can do all of that and get a job and be professional and whatever whatever and make your money etc etc yeah it's been i mean it's been an interesting experience however poetry is still necessary it's still quite seen as like male pale style they say you know so that's like the yeah that's still generally the the, the wider consensus i think but slowly and surely it's changing yeah i i, I guess it's also interesting when we were talking to um this guy called chama on our uh, mental health episode and he was talking about like uh, mental health in, the, in like, the black community mm-hmm. and how you know black men are seen as aggressors mm-hmm. and then it's like navigating that like okay like poetry is like quite emotional you mm-hmm. know it's, it's, it's art and then also navigating the identity of like, a stereotype of being mm. seen as an aggressor and like yeah. navigating that. What's How do you deal with that? Yeah, so um, when I first started out, one of the things that I got asked all the time was, do you rap? And we'd be like, okay, here's Judge Bowling, and he's going to rap. Now I'm going gonna, gonna to read poems. <laughs> okay, he's going to rap. <laughs> <laughs> what? And then I'm just like, okay. Um, essentially, like the black male identity is typecast as being aggressive, as being you know almost hyper masculine strong etc etc and we're not really granted a level of expression outside of rap and even like rap itself is seen as very aggressive when there's so many rap songs that highlight issues of like mental health and heartbreak and so forth one of my favorite rap songs that does so is jay electronica's uh, who's gonna save my soul that is such a beautiful melancholic song and there's so many other examples of black male expression through uh, different forms of art and i guess like right now there's a lot more representation so i know so many black male um, poets celebrates yomi sode etc lionheart david j pugilist who's just like expressing themselves in a way that challenges the norm of what we understand to be you know the black male identity and i think like generation per generation we break that down and allow that to move forward so how can we like be allies Hmm. to this okay wow that's an interesting question um i think as an individual the most impactful ways of being an ally is using the privilege that you have to um kind of help dismantle the structures of of, of oppression so in, in fact just being here being using the space that you have here to put on the podcast that you do reaches so many people and i think that's one example but i think also it has to be within our closest spaces as well within our relationships within our friendships and so forth within our families because there's too many times where you know just sat over dinner and so forth where we just allow particular expressions of prejudice to just pass by because oh that's just our uncle he wants when he has a few he's like this and so forth or that's just mum or that's just and it's very challenging because it impacts the relationship that you do have with the closest people around you but what i found is like over the years they really changed the way they see the world because of you and though it might not seem like anything instantly because too often when it comes to allyship we want instant change and in fact even just like when it comes to dismantling structures of oppression we're dealing with institutions that are hundreds hundreds of years old you know that have taken the lives of millions of people really it's about like the space that you're in i think that's the like the the, the best way to do it is that the space that you're in within your relative privilege dismantle the structure in that space and if every person is doing it relative to whatever privilege they have in those spaces then slowly now we're definitely going to see a change because if you take that in your walk it's like a ripple effect we have really enjoyed having you on the podcast thank you thank so you. so much there is one final question that we mm-hmm. always ask so how could people find out more about you what is your book where can they find it tell cool. us that um so 
yeah, one of the things of living in a capitalist state is although you're anti-capitalist, you still have to find means to survive in it. Yeah, I'm a novelist. I My debut novel is called No Place to Call Home. It was published in June. And if people want to support it, it's available through all the mainstream institutions and so forth. It's in all the shops. So if you can support independent bookshops, I love independent bookshops. And I really want to say more, like see more of them um, stay open. But yeah, that's it really. My social media handles is JJ underscore bola on everything yeah feel free to at me and so forth and carry on the conversation so kind of just wanted to ask um we're we're interested in starting like a a book club Mm -hmm. and obviously your book is going to go right on there oh boom if you had to recommend one resource all right so just to prefix that uh on my website i have like book recommendations and stuff okay so if people want to check out more uh, (laughs) i would say like in regards to this conversation the one resource that i would highly recommend okay i'm gonna go for pedagogy of the oppressed by paolo frere it is an absolutely invigorating book and it's about the structures of oppression and what they teach us through education essentially one of the points he makes in that which was we often see oppressed people as being dehumanized but we do not see the oppressor as dehumanized as well because the oppressor always given their full humanity so he really talks he goes into such like amazing detail oh my gosh it's an amazing book awesome and then i i just put this on randomly do you have any like readings of any of your poems so i can read a part of the book if that's uh something that you guys would like yeah Yeah. okay all right great um so yeah okay cool i'm gonna read a part of um no place to call home so no place to call home is a story about a family um who come from congo to the uk as refugees and it looks at their lives from the perspective of the parents also the children and how they navigate like modern british society but also looks at how they um, grew up in Kinshasa what their experiences were and what eventually led them to leave and so it confronts the issue of home and belonging and so uh, I'm going to read a part of the epilogue which essentially looks at the relationship that people have with the notion of home if you are lucky you will never have to remember home through your mother's tears or the rage in your father's voice when it shakes home will be somewhere you run to never away from It will never chase you away. A rabid dog hot on your hills with teeth like a shark. Teeth so sharp you can already feel it cutting into you. If you are lucky, home will never up and leave you, and up and leave you, and up and leave you, to the point where whenever anyone ups and leaves you, it feels like home. You will look for them, as if they are home, because we all need somewhere to stay, even if it is a person. Somewhere safe. Somewhere warm. Home should never be to you an abusive ex-lover. It should never beat you down, taunting you with its beady eyes and clenched fists, knowing too well how much you want it and how much you hurt because it hurts you. And though it has hurt you, and you left it, you should never long for it, but you do. You wish to return to its forsaken arms to be held once more by a home, even if only for a little while. You try to remember whether you left home or if it left you. If you are lucky, its memory will never haunt you when you move on so you not have to remember. A city is merely a collection of buildings, and buildings do not have souls, so how can home haunt you as though a ghost? But it does, cold sweat on your forehead as you buckle to your knees, for who else wakes in the middle of the night filled with this longing, both a nightmare and a dream? You cannot tell if home is dying or if it is you, but you know you are both fighting to stay alive, at times fighting each other. Home should never break you in two, 
So wherever you go, you are never whole. Half of you remains where you left it and the other half is rejected where you arrive. You are a split, flat-sided pendulum suspended in the air on each side. If you are lucky, and you were, none of this would have ever happened to you. You should have enough of home to take with you wherever you go. Yet you don't. You carry only what was left to you. Only enough to fit in the cracks of the lines in your palm. A small streak of hope. And so you hold it tight, fist clenched, with both rage and regret. <laughs> Yay, <laughs> thank you. man. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you thank so you. much. So that was JJ, whose book No Place to Call Home is out now at your local independent bookstore around the UK. Up next, professor and all-round superwoman, Jamila. Hi, my name is Jamila Liscott. I'm also known as Dr. J. I'm a black woman scholar. I work in both New York City and I also work in Massachusetts. I'm currently a visiting assistant professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst as a social justice education professor, and I'm also a senior research fellow at at Columbia University's Teachers College. Um, I have a Caribbean-American background, um, and I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. Amazing. Well, what a privilege it is for us to have you on our podcast this month. Thank you so much. Sid and I first came across your work when you did a TED Talk about language, which is why we reached out to you for this episode. So I wondered if you could maybe tell us a little bit about you know, yourself, the work that you do, and why language is important to you and all your career. Absolutely. Rooted in my own personal narrative, the way that I navigate uh, multiple types of English. So with my Caribbean background, I utilize and have utilized for my entire life Caribbean creolized versions of English, as well as uh, Black American English that exists in my communities in Brooklyn, New York. And then as I navigated institutional spaces such as school, I was introduced to and very adept at standard forms of English. And so my own personal narrative saw some tension and some conflict with navigating different social spaces and also having to navigate these different Englishes. And then it became a point of of analysis for me to think about, well, what is it about my racial identity and my linguistic identity as they intersect that um, affects the way that I navigate these spaces and the kind of decisions that I make and the way that I'm read when I'm within these spaces. And so it became a really important important line of scholarship for me because, you know, coming out of navigating that from a personal space, I started to see that linguistic oppression and racial oppression had some very significant overlap. And utilizing those intersections, I've been able to analyze the way that inequality occurs throughout our society generally, but um, specifically a lot of my work focuses on systems of education and power. Could you tell us a little bit about what is linguistic oppression and maybe any examples of that you may have? So in general, one of probably the most prevalent examples in in the communities that I come from, in black communities, for example, is um, the kind of linguistic profiling that might happen via a phone call. So at a very young age, not even explicitly, but we were kind of conditioned to know that when you're making a phone call, you need to try to sound less black, right? Because when you're on that phone call, if it's a professional phone call, then sounding too black can really limit whatever opportunities might exist. And this has happened, there's evidence of this happening, obviously for job interviews, but then also with housing and things, you know, if you're calling in and suddenly the real estate agent is like, oh no, there's no more housing in that area because you sound black and they know that you you know you might not be 
welcome into a particular community. And prior to that, they may have, may have been corresponding with you via email or something. And so this kind of linguistic profiling is something that people of color navigate all of the time. I'm talking about it from the orientation of my racial identity as a black woman, but especially in, in, in America, we have people who are multilingual, particularly Latinx communities who might really engage in Spanglish or Spanish, and that's heavily, heavily, heavily policed. And, you know, depending on where you are and the way that you're profiled or understood and read, so from my personal experience, what I've also noticed is that I receive a lot of affirmation for my ability to speak standard English very well, and people equate that with my intellectual ability. Whereas if they hear me speaking in the other Englishes, I speak Caribbean Creolized English or Black English, Black American English, then I am thought of as maybe ratchet. There are other words for it, you know, like there's an inferior assessment made about my intellectual ability or my value based on the way that I'm speaking. And so, you know, that has been some of the ways that linguistic oppression functions in the sense that language becomes a social location where people can be marginalized, where there's cultural struggle, and where specifically white supremacy plays out by imposing standard forms of language and Eurocentric forms of language as being the only valid What is it about language that is so like deeply ingrained in you know like cultural heritage and identity? So I study language from socio-cultural perspectives, and the idea is that language is a social practice. It's not something that exists in a vacuum. It's not something that exists divorced from history and culture. The way that we engage with language is directly connected to the bodies who are using that language. It's directly connected to the dominant culture of a society because language is forged within history and culture at all times, it's completely dynamic. So in my research, what I've learned is that because language is embedded in the socio-cultural context that it emerges out of, it has been very central to some of the most heinous acts of oppression in our society, including American chattel slavery, colonization, imperialism. So I often use examples that show how within spaces of schooling, within colonial context, students would be physically beaten or they would um, be shamed for speaking their mother tongue because it was really important that the colonizers reinforce the colonial language on on the students and on the people as a way to go about this, the colonization process. And there was a lot of intentionality during American chattel slavery around controlling the language and the literacies of black bodies. And so, for example, once slaves arrived, they were separated so that they they would not be in groups where they shared the same language. That was very important, right, Um, as a a way to, to have better control over them. But then once they were enslaved, their owners would also be very intentional about paying attention to their language. And also it was it was illegal for slaves to learn to read and write because it was illegal for slaves to learn to read and write. It, it had a deep impact on on the questions of language and literacy and how even black forms of language were forged within that process here in this country. And so I believe that this this relationship between language and struggle exists. Because really what it, what it points to is the social struggles that we're navigating. So we use language, but the way that we police language is really directly connected to the way that we police bodies. Marginalized languages are often just very connected to marginalized bodies in our society. 
So it's really just embedded and intersects with all the other systems of oppression that exist in our world. Is there any way that you can expand on that a little bit more in terms of like how language specifically relates to all these like different differing identities and like varying levels of privilege and oppression? So because, again, I study language from the lens of mostly the black American and black Caribbean experiences. A part of what I've learned also is around the way that societies are valued in connection with their ability to be literate. One of the one of the justifications for viewing African communities and African peoples as less than humans, one of the justifications was that they were not literate. They did not have the kinds of literacy practices that their oppressors were used to. And so there's like this relationship between language and literacy And then how that feeds into how we perceive people is just so important and intricate. So the perception or the framing of a person of color speaking another language or struggling to speak English or not being able to read and write fully, that feeds into an ideological phenomenon that we've all bought into about this person not being fully human. Um, And this is something that, that... for a long time came up in the it, the imagery, like the caricatures of black people throughout America, it would just be this idea of someone who's bumbling, who can't speak properly, who can't read properly, who can't write proper, properly. And this, again, is the justification for why this person is not valuable, why this person is not fully human. And so there's this relationship, and that, again, that, and you know, that exists at these intersections, right? So there's this, this racial identity, there's this linguistic identity, it's connecting into the system of oppression of slavery, and then definitely, of course, feeding into class values as we move past the, the time of American chattel slavery and thinking about, well, how do we decide who gets to engage in, quote-unquote, social mobility in our society? So one of the ways that, that that class struggle comes up is that when you're a person of color in, in our society, you learn very easily that your ability to navigate different social barriers is actually very direct, directly connected to your ability to master standard forms of English. You know, one of the biggest critiques that I get when folks, when I, when I um, trouble up this issue is like, well, you can't go to a job interview and talk like that, right? You can't speak like that within particular context because it's not right, right? So we know, we have it ingrained, again, at this ideological level that in order to be successful, in order to be professional, in order to be intellectually rigorous, in order to be deemed um, valuable and worthy within particular elite social context, you need to know how to speak a certain way and present yourself a certain way. That certain way reflects very heavily in American context, white middle. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Class values at the expense of other identities and cultural ways of knowing, including linguistic ways of, of engaging. And so there are all of these intersections that we buy into and I believe that so much of it occurs at the ideological level, right? These very fundamental normative beliefs that we buy into collectively in our collective consciousness, but they fly silently below the radar in our society. This ties in quite nicely as to how telling a person of colour that they sound articulate is, mm-hmm. is problematic. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm in the field of education, and like I will see news articles about... Um, a group of young people of color who learn science. It'll be on the news, like, right? It'll be like, wow, these, this group of young people learn science and on the science fair. But, but you could tell that the undercurrent message is like, wow, we're shocked. Who knew, right? And so this, this is what happens when it comes to saying that a person of color is articulate. And it's just like, well, why wouldn't a person of color be articulate? We're capable of doing just as much as anyone else. And then it's also the part that I care about the most is what we conceptualize as articulate. So even now, I'm deemed articulate if I'm speaking again in a particular variety of English. As dynamic as the language is, as much as American English is distinct from different European forms of English, it's a white supremacist ideology that governs the types of Englishes that are seen as intellectual in our society. And so, to me, what ends up happening in that is, is, is that what it does is, again, it marginalizes the, the linguistic practices and the other language varieties and languages that people navigate. So, for example, when it comes to Black American English, there are linguists and scholars and theorists who have established the structural complexity of Black English as it exists in America and, and traced its history to West African languages. So that there are features of black American English now that I might engage in and someone write, writes it off as ghetto or ratchet or just bad English. But those features directly connect to the features of West African languages because when Africans were brought over to America, they did not just suddenly erase their linguistic practices, right? They mapped a lot of it onto the kinds of languages that they had access to around them. And so, so much of what Black American English is now was forged throughout that process. And it's just as complex and valuable and valid as any other language, but it's disregarded again because of the bodies that it's tethered to. And so the problem with being called articulate is one, of course I'm articulate because I can do as much as anyone else. But the other thing is why does being articulate or why does being successful, why does being intellectual always have to be like a cultural erasure process for me so that I'm assimilating to um, dominant cultural and linguistic practices in order to be seen in that way. So then what's it like when you have people from white or dominant culture appropriate language from black culture? To me, it's 
I personally find that unacceptable, um, particularly because, you know, it reminds me very much of the issues that we have around Halloween, where people from from white culture or people from dominant cultures feel like it's appropriate to put on costumes of another race. Like another racial group is not a costume that you can put on and take off. And that's the problem. The problem is that, you know, that distinction that's become very popularized around appreciation versus appropriation. There has not been enough valuing of black people in our nation and in our society. There's more an exploitation of black culture and it sits in the framework of of capitalism. So black culture is so often capitalized on in black bodies when black bodies become continue to be disposable, um, when there's outcries from black communities. The same people who casually engage in black culture are nowhere to be found. The same people can't understand why it's not okay to leave a black person for four hours on the ground after they were just shot and they were unarmed. You can't just dip in and dip out. You know, that's not, that's not what this is. And, and racial identity is not something you try on and take off. That's a form of reinforcing and your privilege in a way that's actually, it's like a mockery in my mind, the way that it, it comes across. Because there are real deep value issues in this country around black lives that are not being dealt with. And so I, I personally, in my stance, do not think it's okay. It comes back down to that idea that for people of colour and for black people, it's not optional to not talk about race and how like racism is right. is, a, is a thing. Whereas for white people, you know, and people from dominant culture, it's something that you know that you can choose to talk about, that you can choose to like dip in and out of. But for other people, that's not. It's a reality that you have to address on a daily basis. I'm quite curious to know what it's like as an academic with all this with all this knowledge. What's it like to work in institutions like Columbia, for example, when, when you think about how these institutions weren't necessarily initially made for black people, you know, like you weren't uh, initially encouraged to be there. And black women too. And black women especially, yeah. Like what's mm-hmm. that like as an academic? You know, I got to tell you, I love it because I think the, 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 the wonderful thing for me is that my work in and of itself, my scholarship is constantly living and breathing the relevance of questions that challenge institutional spaces to live up to the moral value of really what they have not lived up to before. And so I make it my life's work to do that in both my scholarship and my practice. And so, you know, at the at the leadership level of these institutions, I've been at the table like, listen, this is a space that was... Uh, created at, at the exclusion of myself and people who look like me, what does it mean for this institution to reimagine itself now in this moment in light of what we now know, in light of what needs to be done? And so for me, um, that's what I'm always pushing. I create, so for example, at Columbia University, I, I have the privilege of co-directing a youth program that I founded called Cypress for Justice. And with myself, along with a group of really amazing colleagues, we've created this space where young people from all over the city, from different racial groups, from different social locations come together and they learn qualitative research and academic ideas through hip hop, through spoken word, through media literacy, through forms and cultural practices and linguistic practices that are not usually deemed by institutions as intellectual. And so as far as I'm concerned, as a scholar, as I navigate these spaces, I'm always challenging them 
to align themselves with the integrity of what's in most of their vision and mission statements around social diversity and social justice, particularly along the lines of saying it's not enough to open your doors to marginalized groups. You have to reimagine the way that teaching and learning and scholarship and just existing in this space looks now that you are also integrating the cultures and the languages and the ways of knowing of these other groups. I think that's where we failed as a society. We think that integration happens on this really thin level of just having different people in the same room, but we're all going to assimilate to white middle-class culture. Um, And that's what I challenge and that's what I disrupt. What is the impact on young people today of being denied and policed on language? We talk about the hidden curriculum a lot when we think about school spaces. So there are the things that we say to students explicitly, and then there are the silent things that they, they internalize that we don't necessarily say, but it's a part of in school norms. And one of those things, I, I remember visiting a school, um, it was a, like an all-black school, and I, and I asked the young people why they can't speak the way in their community they, the way they can in school. And they were like, we just can't. And I'm like, why not? They were like, we would get kicked out. I'm like, why? They never really questioned it. It just was a part of the norm. Like, they said, we have to leave that at the door. I'm like, you have to leave a whole part of yourself at the door? Why? And you could see the confusion on their faces. And the, the problem is, what's violent to me, is that they have already internalized that in order to be successful, in order to be fully human, in order to be intellectual, they have to let go of, erase, push away, or push down the norms that come from their own communities the norms that come from their, their homes, you know? And, and to me, that's violent work because, then, because that continues on, right? And then what happens in the same way in the colonial process, if you're beating students for, for speaking their mother tongue in school, what happens when they go home? How does that shape their attitudes towards their communities? They start to buy into a system that devalues their very own people. And then they internalize oppression. And so to me, that's, that's, that's the part that really just, that's the part that hurts the most. Like in 2009, um, one of our, a Texas state representative, her name was Betty Brown. She announced that Asian Americans should adopt names that are easier for Americans to deal with. And I heard a spoken word piece by a Korean American young man about how painful it was for him to have to change his name at such a young age so that now that he's older, he can't speak, you know, his language anymore. He can't speak to his grandmother anymore. And at the time, it was just normal for him. But as he got older and his critical consciousness deepened, he realized that he had traded in such an important part of his own history in order to feel normal and accepted within American culture. And, you know, I share that with, you know, in a lot of places that I go and Oftentimes, there are people in the room who break down in tears because they spend so much time, depending on the types of communities they come from, they spend so much time changing their accent, changing their name, and trying to erase any sign of their indigenous linguistic practices as a way to have access to jobs and to power in our society, and it becomes an identity crisis. Right, because it's at the expense of your home. And again, because language carries with it history and culture, it also carries the ideologies of those histories and cultures in and of itself. And we teach it 
we teach standard forms of language like they're ideologically neutral, but they're, but they're not. And so when you let go of one uh, linguistic um, package for another, you're also embracing a little bit more than just words, right? You're, you're valuing new history. You're centering new cultures. It centers different things. What, what, what should we do, you know, as, you know, as white allies to this? What is the solution and what would our role be in that? In my life's work, what, I'm, what I've been working on is what does it mean to, again, reimagine institutions as pluralistic environments? So actually, while I've been taught that the, the language practices from my home are a deficit, then I, they're actually an asset, right? They strengthen what I'm capable of doing. They strengthen my linguistic and intellectual dexterity because I navigate these different forms. And so to me, the solution is to have our institutional spaces reimagine themselves to accommodate that as opposed to having this very, like, very Eurocentric, very white middle class, specific marginalizing body of practices that act like anything outside of that is delinquent or deficient. So I think all spaces need to be reimagined in that way. That's the ultimate goal. But, you know, in terms of allyship, I always think my, my role for white people is always to be in, in conversation and in action and in work with white communities. I think that's one of the biggest, most important contributions with the most integrity. I, I have found that it is sometimes, it's sometimes more difficult for white people to speak to white communities in their minds than it is for them to, you know, try to participate in the work that, that marginalized groups, historically marginalized groups are engaged in. But the truth is that people of color don't have access to white communities the way that white people do. And the truth is that people of color are also, um, it's also just like not okay for people of color to always have to be the ones that are constantly educating white communities about, you know, these issues. And so then it becomes really, really important for white allies to be like, yo, like we're in, you know, we're going to do the work within our own community context. Because that, those are the, honestly the way that white privilege and white supremacy still function in our society is that, that um, those white communities, especially those privileged white, elite white communities, are the communities that are at the helm of shaping so much of what happened in our institutional context. And so if anybody needs to be wrestling with these ideas, it's those spaces, right? And so I think that's, that's a lot of the work that, that white folks need to be doing. I guess it's one of the, the final questions, really, and that's about um, how we can support you, find out more about your work. How can people find out more about you, that kind of thing? Feel free to check out my, my website, jamillaliscott.com. Um, I put most of my updates there. I can be found at Black Relevance I'm on both Instagram and on Twitter. And then, you know, just, you know, Google. <laughs> I, have a, I have a book coming out soon, um, next, sometime next year. That's going to be uh, specifically for educators who are looking to confront white privilege within, within and beyond their school context. And so, yeah, just follow me anywhere you can and, and I'll keep the updates coming. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> I'm definitely going to keep an eye out for your book. <laughs> yeah, we said just like fist pumped there. 
at that. Um, yeah, thank you. And thank you so much for having me. It was a real privilege to be oh. on, on, um, on your show. Oh my gosh. Honestly, the privilege is ours. Yeah, 100%. It's an honor to have you. Yeah, like, uh, unreal. Like, we, we watched your TED Talk and we just fell in love with it. It was so amazing. So, so honoured and privileged that you, like, made the time to come on this podcast and chat to us. Because I appreciate that it's probably a lot of emotional and intellectual, la- intellectual labour on your part. <laughs> so, really, thank you. Thank you. Jamila's TED Talk, Three Ways to Speak English, is up on TED and we would highly recommend it if you want an accessible way to know more about how language has a bearing on opportunity and social mobility. Last but not least, it's Gary. So my name's Gary. Um, I recently turned 35 years old. I'm white, cis, gay, non-disabled and I'm most definitely a feminist. I was formerly Director of Communications for Change.org, the online petition platform and now I'm a professional journalist specialising in language. Amazing. Thank you so much. We're really excited to have you on the podcast this month. We've read your pieces in The Guardian and they're really, really eye-opening. I just wanted to quickly ask, so you said that you most definitely identify as a feminist. And one of the things that we found when doing this research or this podcast in particular is when we've had other men on it, you know, we've asked, oh, what do you think of the word feminism, feminist? Do you identify as a feminist? And there's kind of like a mixed bag of responses. Some say that, you know, They can't identify as a feminist because of male privilege, but then some say, you know, feminism is all about equality for everyone and all genders, no matter what. So I'm interested to know what your stance is on this. I'm of the Chimamanda school of thought, we should all be feminists. Hopefully some of your listeners would know. Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie and her TED Talk, We Should All Be Feminists. Always really great that people check their privilege. And 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 as as a white man, I want to be someone that does that. But as a white gay man... Feminism is really important to me and it's a really important label just because one of the things I've perceived as someone that's gay and, you know, self-identified as gay, it's it's been quite a journey. You know, I came out at a time when there was a Tory government, my dad read the Daily Mail every day, society and everyone was telling you that being gay was lesser than, it was inferior. And and I actually thought about it quite a lot growing up and, and, and I thought a lot of the homophobia that I've perceived in my life isn't actually homophobia at all. I think a lot of it is about gender. And and it's something, there's this term that I've coined, which I call the patriarchal pedestal. And that is that anyone that subscribes to that version of masculinity is seen as superior. And anyone that kind of rejects it in any way, shape or form, and that includes people that self-identify as gay and perhaps include some of the more stereotypical kind of like camp elements of gay and own that. I would say that they are rejecting the patriarchal pedestal and therefore they get treated as someone that is insane because they have let go of, you know, the one thing that that supposedly makes them superior in society, which is the, the bravado of masculinity. And I reject that. I reject that. I reject toxic masculinity. And I, and I, identify very prominently as a feminist for those reasons just because I think gender comes into play so much with sexual orientation. It's really interesting to hear about the intersections of homophobia and sexism and gender because I know that especially when you're looking at school children, the people who experience homophobic bullying will be girls who are really good at sports or boys who aren't so good at sports and thinking about how that has a way of perhaps policing our own and gender and, and, and thinking about like your, your role in it too. I was wondering if you could tell us about the importance of language and in particular what happens when it gets hijacked. Hijacking is quite concerning, although it depends how you frame it. So like you, you might want to frame it as like some language gets hijacked. But another way of framing it is just that that's what language does because it never stays still. It's not a fixed thing, constantly evolving. The rules are always changing. And sometimes it gets hijacked, but sometimes that 
hijacking can be quite creative and interesting and, and exciting. And other times it can be quite concerning. You get these grammar purists who, I think it all started with a woman called Lynn Trust who wrote a book called Eat, Shoots and Leaves and, and talked about how it really upset her whenever she saw a grammatical mistake, which was quite often in, out in the world. And that started this kind of new wave of grammar purism that you saw where people were real sticklers for where apostrophes went and for, for the right use of language, you know. And it's kind of a redundant fight because no matter how you frame it, language will always evolve and it will always change. And the meaning that is loaded onto certain words will always change. And in some ways, there's a really good social and empathetic reason to fight against that, uh, which I'll talk about in a second. And that's when it gets hijacked and nefarious ends, I'd argue. But there are other times when perhaps we need to go with the creativity and the evolution of, of linguistics and just accept that that's, that's the way it is. And that can be done, you know, reluctantly, you know, even with emojis and, and, and realising that this is just a new way we communicate now. But in terms of hijacking, I think, you, you know, one of the words that immediately when you use that word hijacking, I thought of the word snowflake, um, which is one that has been batted around by both the left and the right quite recently. So whenever someone takes offence, you know, offence culture is so pertinent in our society at the moment. I first saw it being used by the right whenever the left would complain about perhaps language that was derogatory or sexist or racist or uh, not very inclusive. People on the right would say, you're just being a snowflake, you need to harden up. And now I've seen it used quite often on, on Twitter, especially by those on the left and, you know, fellow Guardian writers calling the people on the right snowflakes and they get upset and angry about everything. So it kind of almost cancels each other out. And it, so, like, this, you know, the left are hijacking this, this, this insult that's thrown at them from the right and they're throwing it back to the right and it, everyone's a snowflake. So it's just this snowstorm of offence. But probably the second word that sprung to mind when you, when you talked about hijacking was the word gay. And that's a word that's really important to me. And, you know, it's a label that I feel a lot of ownership over and a lot of pride about. Because it, the journey that I had to go on in order to self-define as gay was not an easy one. And I had to uh, expose parts of myself that were quite raw and quite vulnerable in order to self-define as that label. And, you know, uh, it probably wasn't until I was in, in, you know, way into my 20s that I, in any workplace or any, any situation that I was in that I could say I'm gay without feeling a, a tinge of shame or embarrassment and the, the really concerning hijacking for me of that term was when um, uh, youth colloquialism and slang started to use gay as a synonym for anything inadequate or anything inferior so you know you're so gay or that's so gay they might even you know it could even be used to describe an inanimate object that they thought was crap and they'd say that's gay and um, although language's evolution excites me nine times out of ten, this is that one of those one times out of ten that I am going to fight back and I will fight hard against that hijacking because that is not okay. And, you know, in a society where homophobia is still, is still pervasive and, and is still, you know, it perhaps is a little bit more insidious now than it used to be, but it's still there, we know that. And, um, and, and when we hear they bandied around as a synonym for anything rubbish, it's not a big leap for that someone to then think, well, gay people are rubbish and gay people are inferior and gay people are inadequate. And it's that kind of hijacking that I think we need to fight against. So I actually used to manage the press office for Stonewall, the UK gay and lesbian lobbying and campaigning charity. And during my time there, that was one of our big campaigns. We had a huge campaign to tackle homophobic bullying in schools, which was absolutely rife 
after a law called Section 28, a law that made it illegal to promote homosexuality in schools, and it was introduced by the Thatcher's government. And Stonewall was actually a charity founded in direct response to Section 28, and initially it was a charity, a single-issue charity, which was founded with the purpose of repealing Section 28, and it later grew to tackle all forms of homophobia in British life. But its biggest flagship campaign was the tackling of homophobia and homophobic bullying in Britain's schools. And it had festered under Section 28. There'd been a real epidemic of homophobic bullying that had been left unchallenged because of this really pernicious law. And it was a demeaning and offensive law. And thanks to Stonewall's lobbying and uh, Tony Blair's government, it was actually repealed after being in place for 15 years in 2003. So we, we were cleaning up a hangover of mess of homophobia. And one of the things that had come out from that was this misuse of the term gay in the playground. So I went back to my old school where homophobia was rife, uh, my old comprehensive school in Kent. Uh, and I went there with Syria McKellen, who was one of the founders of Stonewall, and we went there together. And I remember sitting there in my assembly hall where I'd sat there as a very nervous, very closeted gay teenager. And I sat in that very same assembly hall and I listened to Ian McKellen explain to a room full of students why that misuse of that, that hijacking of that term gay was so demeaning and so offensive and so dangerous in the homophobic hate crime that it could lead to or the homophobic bullying that it could lead to. And I was in tears because I remember imagining what would this have felt like if I was 14 years old and I was here in this assembly. And it was so powerful for me to hear someone so eloquent in that mellifluous voice of his to challenge something that meant so much to me. So I'm hoping that um, as a result of his, you know, he was touring around hundreds of schools on behalf of Stonewall to, to tackle that issue, which, you know, as you can just see from the spiel I've just given you, that one hijacking of that one word leads you to talk about so much that's so personal mm. for you. Yeah, i tell you what's interesting is that through the school report and, and the way that you're talking about like the hijacking of language and, and specifically around that's so gay that still happens and so the work is still needed and the overhang of section 28 is still very much here but also everything has shifted ever so slightly in that schools are taking homophobic bullying more seriously but they may not be taking biphobic bullying more seriously and they're definitely not really thinking about transphobic bullying in language and then that veers more into how we support trans young people in schools but when it comes to things being so gay there are some schools are doing fantastic amazing work and no no kid would use that word as a derogatory way and there are other schools where they still have that conversation to be had and the 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 issue is probably exactly the same as when you were touring with schools it's the teacher's confidence to be able to challenge that and not have the fear of having to explain what being gay is or means and actually that you know everyone should be accepted without exception that kind of thing yeah, and, and I think that you're absolutely right. I think mean, we're all on the journey when it comes to transphobic language or biphobic language. You know, it, it can be it can be a real slip of the tongue sometimes. You know, and I I have to confess, you know, I've been guilty of it myself. There's, there's been times when I've used language and I've thought back and I thought that probably wasn't appropriate. And um, it, 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 but but the, con- the, the concerted insidious way that gay was being used really upset me um, and, and, and it's good to see that there's a slight shift but I think that you know when you talk about biphobic language you know I, I, a while ago I wrote a column for The Guardian about biphobia and about all of the all of the pernicious 
kind of stereotypes um, that get thrown uh, at the bisexual community and bisexual people. And, and, and upsettingly, a lot of it is also by gay people. Um, and, 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 you know, and that really upset me. And I did a piece about, about that and, um, you know, and about how pervasive that can be. So, yeah, I, I, I love the fact that we started to move on to challenge, in a more sophisticated way, challenge now biophobic language and transphobic language. And I think it's really interesting as well, like, you know, I, I'm definitely not an advocate for censorship. The column that I wrote for the, the Guardian was called Mind Your Language, and some of my friends used to check with me saying, it's so ironic that you write that column because you've got a mouth like a toilet. And it was ironic that I, you know, someone that I can, I can, I can use expletives in colourful language, you know, as much as the next person. And my column was called Mind Your Language, but what what, what I would try to convey in my column was that like no one should be censored. No, absolutely, I'm not. I'm not for that. But I am. I am for um, consideration. The language that you might use in, in close, behind closed doors to your boyfriend and to your, your your friends might be completely different to that that you'd use in the public arena. And context is everything. I thought it was really interesting when you were talking about how that you've been guilty of it before. You know, you've said things that you weren't necessarily proud of and I think that's important to recognise because I'm the same like I remember when I was at uni and this is that wasn't that long ago that was maybe like three or four years ago and in second year I was still bandying around the term oh my god that's so gay and the reason that I think it's important to stress this is that we're not perfect like Sid and I are not perfect and I'm not lumping Sid into this because (laughs) I am (laughs) (laughs) Sid is perfect and it it took for me to have like a gay housemate at uni when we were just having a conversation and I was like oh my god that's so gay and then he, he and he went along with it he was like oh my god I know right and then I kind of had to like step back a little bit and was like wow I'm really sorry that's really offensive to lump a part of your identity into something that's really negative and derogatory and it like took that for me to realize yeah I've got an example yeah. too I used to say that something was lame all the time I had no idea well, I mean, I knew what it meant, I suppose, but I just used it. And then at one point I was with my friend who, who was a wheelchair user and, and he said, don't use that, Sid. And I was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> I, I try to be so good at this stuff because I've been trying for, for a few years, I suppose. But um, no, that we've all got a long way to go. And I suppose the, the thing is that you can find other words to explain what it is that you're trying to say. And once you realise it... And once you notice it, you start noticing when other people say it. And it's kind of your responsibility, I suppose, to kind of point it out so that you're not leaving it to the gay housemate or, you know, the, 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 the one friend who's disabled to point it out to you. Because how much emotional labour is that on them? The other thing is, um, and this goes back to context, that there are people that sometimes use it ironically, you know, ironic use. I've had, I've had gay people use that, so gay. And I know that they're doing it to be ironic. And they're doing it, and, and in a way, it's a reclaiming of, of that back to that word so you know so they've got the power again and the same might go for disabled people that positively use the word lame and, and, and have their reasons for it because they know they've been ironic but I just think sometimes let's not lose aspects of humour in this you know a more equal society is one that's more relaxed about language and one that can laugh at itself more more easily but when we're not equal we're not there yet it, depend, it all depends on the context but I'm all for ironic use I don't, I, I don't want us to get to the point where we're policing all language but I do think when someone tells you that you have to hear and when your disabled friends did that to you, you know, you have to hear it and, and accept it because that's, that's important to them. I think it's funny because it seems like it always comes back down to power and almost structural power in the sense that I 
as a white person would never say the n-word because even though in some contexts it's been reclaimed and and it's very like you know people some people in the black community will still use it it right now and i'm not sure if it would ever be okay for me to say it because i structurally have more power than a black person and so it's interesting, you know, that you were saying, you know, kind of the context and, and who's saying it comes into it. I 100% agree. I did an article for um, The Guardian about reclaiming words, and I couldn't even type the full word because I felt so uncomfortable with the N-word. And, and you see the I mean, I live in Australia now, and you see the same debate about, around Aboriginal people and some of the derogatory terms that are used for them. And, you know, and, and it is very, very well accepted that it is a complete no-no, certain words that you just don't go near. Um, and... And I think that's progress in a way. I think it's. I don't. I wouldn't see that as censorship. I would just see that as a progress of, of more humanising and you know a more considerate approach to language. I kind of wanted to ask you about the appropriation of queer language and queer culture. What What do you think on that? What's your take? There is a lot of debate around gay colloquial lexicon. A gay colloquial lexicon has a fascinating history. Gay people actually did used to have their own language. It wasn't quite a language, it's what's called a cryptolect, which is a lexicon, like a coded language that's used to hide away in the shadows, but also to acknowledge a member of your other community in a way that either builds solidarity or lets them know quite discreetly that they're, you're, they're one of your kind. The Polari, based on Yiddish and some old friends, and there's a bit of pig Latin in there. There's some wonderful backslang. It all happened um, in, the, in the 50s in Britain when homosexuality was out outlawed but the cover was blown and, and the coded language was exposed when there was a radio show called round the horn which came out and popularized polari and it no longer it no longer held the same the same power about discreetly letting people know that you were gay so that you you wouldn't get detected by the police or by disapproving prudish conservative society and the cover was blown and Polari died out. Now, I, what I would argue is that's been replaced by a really interesting new um, gay colloquial lexicon. The interesting appropriation part, and I'd say this is the modern-day Polari, is, is the black female language that we appropriate. It's a girlfriend with the clicking of the fingers. Yes, queen. No, she didn't. Hey, girl, hey. You know, slay, throw in shade, all of those kind of terms are borrowed from what's perceived as the black female community. I think that this is exactly what language does, as I said earlier. It gets co-opted, it morphs, it evolves, and sometimes it's corrupted. And I can understand that there might be some people in the black female community that are saying that's appropriation and actually you're taking the piss and it's not, it's not on. It isn't just owned by the black female community. There is a wonderful, wonderful documentary called Paris is Burning. It's set in the 1980s in Harlem in New York, and it's all about the black gay male experience. And they talk about their race and their sexual orientation, putting them to the bottom of the pile during that time in New York. And in order to reclaim that power, they created their own microcosm, and that included language. And um, it's, a, it's a fascinating subculture. And out of this subculture, all of these terms, throwing shade, came from the Paris is Burning era. And yes, Queen, and, and a lot of the language that you see in Paris is Burning, it, it is part of the black female experience, but it was also part of the black gay male experience back in that time. And that's such an important history that we can't let go of. I would argue it's not appropriation, but it's not. It's kind of not my place to argue that I'm not. I'm not a black woman, so I, I would. I would love to hear more about what black women think about that debate because I, I reckon there's probably diversity of opinions.
Uh, on it. And I think it's really important to, to acknowledge what different people's points of view might be because there is this whole line, isn't there, between appreciation and appropriation. And even if there are, might be ways that even Elena and I might identify with black women, for example, and really learn from whatever it is that they have to say, there is always going to be an element of we will not understand what it is that like to be a black woman and it is not a place to co-opt or it, it often it's just about listening and where we can challenging uh, racism or sexism in, in the spaces that we have access to. Thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast. H- how can we be better allies when it comes to language? Maybe specifically from your angle about um, the LGBT community and reclaiming words and hijacking words. Like, what can we do to be better allies, us and our listeners? I think in the way that we can be better allies is to not lose our sense of humour. I would much more rather live in a society where offence becomes a redundant position because we've got to the stage where society is much more equal and much more relaxed to laugh at itself point at itself and laugh and I would I would much sooner advocate for a society where every term is permissible you know get everyone to understand that you come from a place that you it's absolutely ludicrous that you would even consider not treating them equally and that is not even that is not even up to debate anymore and then get to a place where you can have fun and and be playful and reclaim language in a way that you're using an insult that's been used to demean us and and we find it endearing and you don't even have to explain why because we all know where the the place where that comes from that's that's the society I want to live in because that's when really creative things happen with language we're starting to see some of that solidarity between different groups and I think between the black women and the and and the and the gay man experience perhaps we see starting to see some of that too now when when people are coming out and saying we share uh, so much you know and although our experiences are different and our power might still be very different um, we can still have fun with language and we can still build solidarity through through playful language and humour and then how can we find you I mean we know that you write amazing articles for The Guardian but how can we and our listeners follow you and support your work so I'm writing regular columns for the Oxford Dictionaries blog so please check them out follow them on Twitter and um, you'll find a lot more of my language pieces there and you can also I write features op-eds um, I don't just write about language. I do a lot of interviews. So you can check me out on Twitter. Um, I'm on Twitter at GaryNunn1. Boom! And that was episode 18, Language. As ever, if you want to know more, please check out the resources our guest suggests as it's coming directly from them. Or better yet, support their work. Currently, all of our guests who do this podcast do it out of their own time with no payment. So if you liked what you heard and you're able to afford it, spend a tenner on one of their books donate to a charity they care about or platform their perspective it really is worth it feedback suggestions and feminist memes can be sent to us at www.kickingthekairiarchy.org facebook kicking the Kyriarchy, twitter at kickkairiarchy or email us kickingthekairiarchy at gmail.com Sid yeah I've got a joke okay <laughs> the past the present and the future walked into a bar. It was tense. Oh, Elena. <laughs> <laughs> you loved it. Special thanks to assistant producers Becky Malone and Emma Hallahan for helping out with this episode. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.